want to pray, and then we'll get started this morning. Father, we're uh, just so grateful to be able to come here and to worship you and to gather as your people. And uh, a, a part of us is um, a little bit coming into this room maybe sorrowful, uh, looking at the uh, state of our world that we live in and all the hardship and suffering and difficulty uh, that people are experiencing. And it's the ministry of the church to be the salt and light of this world, um, the light that bears the truth and shines in the midst of such a dark place, uh, your goodness, your glory, reflecting uh, your character and your salvation, but also um, the salt of the earth in that we are the preserving agent that is spread throughout to slow the, the decay of this world. And so I pray for the ministry of of your spirit working among your people in this world. Um, but God, we pray for those who are, who are hurting and, and suffering around us and, and pray, uh, and even not around us, on the other side of the world. Um, God, we pray for your will and your goodness um, to be done. Uh, but, but God, it starts with us here. And I pray that in our time together, um, as Cody was talking about, when we leave this place, we would be equipped by your spirit to go out and live the lives that you've called us to live, um, not in our own strength, but in the strength that you supply. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Romans 8. We're going to look at verses 18 to 27. And the title this morning, if you're taking notes, is a question. And the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Uh, this week, we're walking kind of one foot in front of the other through this amazing chapter. I think we're going to do five sermons through chapter eight or something. It's such a great chapter. But this week, we're going to start with this question. Is it worth it? Every day we make decisions. In fact, our entire day is an endless stream of decision making. Most of them are simple, but sometimes they're significant decisions, life decisions. I, I actually read an article, several articles, that cited several different uh, research analysis of people, and these different articles believed that on average, 35, a person makes 35,000 decisions a day. That's a lot of decisions. Now, obviously, most of these decisions are made subconsciously. We don't even realize or recognize we're making these decisions. Sometimes you make a decision to not make a decision, which is really just to delay the decision that's going to come. You have to make the decision, but it's a decision in making to not make a decision, right? We make decisions all the time is the point. But whether we realize it or not, one of the biggest factors when weighing out a decision and coming to a conclusion is this question, is it worth it if you're buying a car? to if you're buying a soda at the store or something. I mean, everything, we ask this question, is it worth it? In other words, what will this decision or making that decision over the other cost me and what will I gain? What will I lose in order to go that direction? And there's so many other factors that inform the answer to that question. Again, whether it's buying a new car or fixing the one you have, uh, buying a new house or waiting for the market to change, all the way down to what shirt am I going to wear to church uh, this morning? Or what am I going to order for lunch? I mean, all these are decisions that we make. And a lot of it is based on this question, is it worth it? What's this going to cost me? Well, when it comes to our Christian faith and being a disciple of Jesus, 
There are many points in a believer's life where they may ask this question, is it worth it? Is becoming a Christian worth the cost it will inevitably, inevitably be for me? In the Gospels, Jesus told this parable of a man who built a house, he was planning to build a house, started building the house, but he didn't count the cost very well and, and, or accurately. And because of that, he couldn't finish the house. It was funny, when I moved here, it reminded me of that house on the Willamette. <laughs> Most of you know, the one right there on the corner. Um, and, and people in the story that Jesus told, people poked jokes at this person. What a fool. He would started building a house and he didn't count the cost of what it was, and now he's this unfinished life to some degree. Similarly, Jesus talked about how in that same story, no military general marches onto the field of battle without counting the cost. What's it worth to go to the front lines? How many soldiers am I going to lose? What's the cost of my own personal leadership as a military general? Again, Jesus is saying all these things, and sometimes many factors, in fact, people when becoming a Christian, they think about this question, what is it going to cost me if I give up my old life, my old friends, my job? What is it going to cost me in becoming a Christian? And sometimes people are told that if they become a Christian, everything will work itself out, which on some level is true. But they walk away from that message thinking that if they become a Christian, they won't have any hardship or sufferings. The cost really is nothing. And and they wouldn't admit this, but they're convinced that being a Christian means that it's all sunshine and rainbows and unicorns every day, right? So they make a decision for Jesus in that moment because when they consider the cost of following Jesus, they think, well, there's not really a cost. I'm not going to lose anything in following Jesus, and all I can do really is gain. And you know what happens to people like that? They walk away. And they do so because they built their decision in walking with Jesus on false information and assumptions. Jesus talked about this in another parable, often referred to as the seed and the sower. And he talks about this seed of God's Word that's thrown out among different types of soil. One or two of them are rocky soil and then thorny soil, or where there's a lot of weeds. And he relates this to the human heart. So that's rocky hearts and hearts that are filled with thorns. And in both cases, he says the people received the word, the gospel, with joy, instantly, immediately. They're like, yes, give me Jesus. It sprouted up quickly, showing early signs of spiritual life and conversion. But in a short time, we're calling it quits because, as Jesus said, the love of money and the allure of the world and because of trials and sufferings when they came, both as a natural part of life in a fallen world, but also because now we're Christians and we're going to have extra suffering and hardship in a different way, they say, whoa, whoa, I didn't sign up for this. When you first sold me the car, when you first talked to me about this Jesus guy, I didn't think it was going to cost me that much. And so they're like, this isn't worth it. I'm getting out of this. So my question to you this morning is this, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And I know most of you And I know that most of you would say with an enthusiastic, yes, it is so worth it. But maybe, maybe you're going through a situation or you just recently went through a situation or you're about to go into a situation where you think, is it worth it? And don't be naive in thinking that even the strongest Christian asks that question, is it worth it? 
Maybe the gravitational pull of the world is pulling you down and the burden is so strong, whether it's work or relationships or anything like that, and you're saying, man, I don't know if I can continue to walk with Jesus in this way. I don't know if the cost to gain ratio works out in my favor. So the question this morning, our question of is it worth it, comes from Paul's statement here in Romans 18. And we're going to hear right away his answer to the question, along with his thoughts as to why he thinks so. Let's look at just verse 18. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, as you know, the preceding verses is what caused Paul to say that statement and that phrase there in the first place. Verse 16 and 17, we looked at it last week, but you can look at it again with me. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Great news. And if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Great news, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Whoa, that's that's interesting news. <laughs> that Wait, so there's a cost to this following Jesus thing? We learned last week about several of the wonderful benefits of being a Christian. We're adopted into the family of God. We're called sons, daughters, children of God. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Literally, God's presence is with us 24-7. Every single day, He leads us. He seals us, or He, he, he is the seal of our adoption, the proof that we are children of God. He enables us to cry out tenderly to God who is tender toward us, the words, Abba, Father. And this is a witness that we are truly children of God and assurance that we are truly saved. All of this is really great news, right? Sounds wonderful. Sounds amazing. These are evidences that we are truly saved. It's that last piece of evidence, right, that we struggle with. The part where he says, provided, provided we also understand there will be suffering. As he suffered for us, we will suffer with him in this life, but we will be glorified with Him. So it's not only suffering. The suffering is not the end. It may be a means to the end. Did you notice what He did there? He gives the readers all this good news, all the positives of being a Christian and a child of God that has been given to us by God's grace through the work of Christ and the ministry of the Spirit. However, receiving this free gift of grace also means it comes with it means we have to set other things aside. It means we're going to experience things that we didn't think we signed up for. And I love that because I think a lot of times when you hear gospel presentations, it's all roses, right? Jesus, he'll give you peace, he'll give you joy, he'll give you hope, and he'll give you all of these things. But I love Paul because he'll be honest with you at the same time and say, but it ain't going to be easy following Jesus. It doesn't mean it's all rainbows and unicorns. There will be suffering. There will be hardship. But that's why he says there, he gives all of this good news and then the suffering. He says, listen, all of this is yours, the glory of God, the glories of heaven, sonship, adoption, intimacy with God. It's all yours, assuming that you endure hostility and suffering in this present age with Christ and for Christ. And at the end of verse 17, 
If, if we just paused there and didn't continue on into 18 like we're doing this week, uh, like, well, like we did last week, uh, a person reading that, if they just stopped at verse 17, may be thinking, if, is, is suffering in the name of Jesus really worth it? Is enduring through the endless hardships of this life in a fallen world worth it? Is not being included at the table of secular culture and society, is that worth it? Because, friends, gone are the days when Christians are accepted in secular culture. There maybe was a time when it was okay to be a Christian, maybe even beneficial to be a Christian here in this country. But it's, as you all know, I'm not speaking, you know, untruths to you. You see it yourself. Is, is not being included by friends, gossiped about, slandered in the community. Is all of that worth it in the end? Really, this is the question. If I lost everything I hold dear and can't imagine life without, would I still be able to say, as Job did, when he literally lost everything, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He he thought it was really worth it. So it's this tension in decision-making that caused Paul to immediately pour cold water on that rising temperature in this question in the room of verse 18. And his immediate response is, I'll tell you what I think about it. Is it worth it? Oh, it's worth it. It is so worth it. It doesn't even compare. A few things to notice just there in verse 18. First, the realities of suffering and glory, these two things go together. In the theology of salvation, there is no future glory, there is no present glory without also present suffering and hardship. Because of sin, because of the fall, everything is subject to hardship and corruption in this life. However, through the providence and the goodness of God, He is able to use those hardships and difficulties that we experience as his people and turn them into good both now, but ultimately really in the future. We'll look at that more next week. So these realities, suffering and glory, they, they go together, they're hand in hand, but they're not the same. And we'll talk about that in a second. But the second thing is this, time is a factor in these two things. The difference between both suffering and glory is weighed out in the reality of time. Paul refers to the suffering in the context of this present time. Right now, we're going through difficult times. Right now, we're going through hardships. And so these two may go together. They're uh, indissoluble realities of the Christian experience, but the suffering will not last forever. The suffering, though it seems really long in light of eternity, I mean, it's a blip on the radar. It's nothing. One day, the suffering, as hard and as long as it feels, will give way to growing eternal glory for the child of God. That's the second thing. The third thing, he says, suffering and glory, they go together. Glory will inevitably overwhelm the suffering of this present life, but there really is no comparison in regard to the quality of it. Suffering may be really hard, the quality of that suffering, but the quality of our glory that we will receive, that day that we are with God, that our redemption is complete, it doesn't compare to the glory that is in store for us at the end of this age or the end of our lives on this earth, whichever comes first. Friends, think about it this way. 
What is the, the absolutely worst thing that can happen to a person? What's the absolute worst thing that could happen to them? I think most people would respond by saying, well, I could die. That's the worst thing. Okay. And I'm not trying to be cavalier here at all. Please don't hear me that way. But everyone dies. Everyone does. Uh, and, and it's horrible, and it's painful. It's, it's an, a painful effect of sin and the fall, and it reminds us of just how horrendous and devastating sin really is. Uh, but it impacts all of us, directly or indirectly. But I'm just simply being honest here. At the end of the day, all of us are delaying the inevitable, and we're afraid of the inevitable, the, what in our minds is worst-case scenario. But this is why the good news of the gospel is that good for the Christian, because our worst-case scenario, our worst-case scenario becomes the gateway to glory, to what God ultimately has in store for us. This is not to say that we should, as Christians, long for death. Paul, remember, he struggled with that. You know, I want to be with you, but I also long to be with Jesus. I under, we understand that struggle, that tension. But this would be, uh, uh, to long for death would be like saying, yeah, I, I love the penalty of sin, right? We, we don't do that. We don't long for death. But we understand that this light and momentary affliction in this world, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, it just doesn't compare to the eternal glory that awaits us. Remember what Jesus said He said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? What what is having all of the money, all the power, and the influence this world can offer if at the end of our short little lives, our 80 or 90, maybe even you live over 100 years, but in, in light of eternity, that short little time, what if at the end of that long life, let's say, you lose out on eternity? Or maybe another question, what if you were able to minimize your suffering of the world in this life of your few decades, but you suffer eternally? A person suffers eternally due to their lack of faith and rejection of God's free gift of grace in Jesus. This is where Jesus is trying to say, like, it doesn't compare. You're you're investing in something that ultimately will not pay out in the end. Are you investing in eternal life? This is what he's talking about. These are the weights that Paul has placed on the scales that has brought him to this decision and conclusion. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? Coming to Jesus doesn't mean we won't suffer. In fact, we may suffer more. But the good news is that our sufferings now as sons and daughters, children of God, that those sufferings are producing in us greater degrees of glory for the future. In the meantime... While we wait between these two ages, the age of suffering and the age of glory, the age of salvation inaugurated, which was when Jesus came and died on the cross for us, and salvation consummated when he returns for us, for his people, Paul writes that in in that tension, in that meantime, right now, Paul writes, there is this deep and mysterious and multifaceted experience that we as Christians go through. And he says, it's it's marked by this word groaning that takes place. So in these next few verses, we're going to see that. But there's a groaning because of this tension, because of this process of decision-making. First, there is a groaning in the entire creation. 
Second, there's a groaning in the heart of every Christian and the entire church throughout the ages. And even, thirdly, in the Holy Spirit Himself, there are these groanings. As we suffer in this life and as we wait for the glory that is to come, there is this unintelligible groaning that is happening all around us, even inside of us. And Paul's going to talk about that here. Let's read verse 19 to 22 where he talks about the groaning of creation. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We've been asking this question, is it worth it? And, and how that question, it's either spoken or it's unspoken by us. It's either conscious or unconscious. It's a factor in our decision making. And as believers, we can affirm that it is worth it on the basis of faith, knowing that the future glory will be better than the present sufferings. But there's an illustration for this, and Paul uses it here. And there's no better illustration, really, than a mother uh, giving birth to a child. Now, I'm a man. None of you are confused by that. I'm definitely not. I'm a man, which means I have no idea what it is like to be on the field playing in the, in the game of pregnancy life. I have no idea what that is like. The only thing I know about it is watching it from the bleachers, right? I, I know what it's like from the outside, but I don't know what women and men, we don't know what women go through in regard to their experience of pregnancy. But I do know from my observations uh, and especially, obviously, my observation with my wife, pregnancy is not easy. Even if you don't have difficult pregnancies, even if you enjoy pregnancy, it's still not easy. Uh, I mean, think about it. When a woman is planning to get pregnant, she has to weigh it out and ask herself, is it worth it? To some degree, this is there. Is it worth all the hormone changes? <laughs> is it worth my body changing? I'm not able to eat and drink the kinds of things that I would normally do if I wasn't pregnant. The physical changes to your body, the social changes in regard to your free time. You can't just go out to the movies anymore and stay out till 11 o'clock. The little party here in downtown the other day, you know, I'm seeing people that there were, there were the, the older people there earlier. This is the demographics, right? Older people there earlier. Then the young family showed up and then they left around bedtime and then everybody else who had no kids lingered until 11 o'clock at night. That's just kind of how it works. So we're thinking, is it worth it? Is it worth my social time? Not to mention the inevitable, obvious pain of giving birth to a child. I know as a man, that would be the scariest thing to me thinking about. What is the cost? But it is a great illustration because as real and difficult as those costs are, you would have a really hard time finding a mom in the delivery room holding her brand new baby just going through this intense experience of giving birth and go up to her and ask her, is it worth it? She would, no woman would say in that moment, yeah, this wasn't worth it. I mean, they would all, they, you're holding your brand new baby, of course, of course it's worth it. And it's this image that Paul uses about the entire creation like a pregnant mother, he says the creation is, is groaning. And these groans are, are sourced in two realities. 
The first reality is the pain of fallenness. When Adam sinned, we are told in the account in Genesis that God, He cursed the ground because of Adam's sin. Adam, the one who was responsible, he was a steward, a vice regent over the earth. Instead of doing what he was supposed to do and care for the earth, he sinned against the earth, and a curse was brought upon it. And ever since then, life on this planet hasn't been what it is supposed to be. Trust me, I'm a firm believer that we as Christians should do all that we can in our efforts with creation care. I totally believe in that. However, I'm also realistic in the sense that this world is broken, and it's always going to be broken because of human sin. And not just past sin, but present sin. Even things that we think are going to help, we don't know if they'll help. Even the things that, that we know are hurting, if we take those away, we don't really know. As we all know through our experience, the creation groans because it's suffering this fate of the fall. Like Eve, the moment that sin entered the world, God told her that in pain she will give birth to her children. Now the earth is in pain and groans as a result of this sin, and we see its effects everywhere, don't we, through natural disasters and droughts and the like. But there's this other groan coming from creation, as Paul says. It's the groan of hope. So there's the groan of, man, this is hard. Life is hard. Even the creation itself is groaning. But in an almost personified way, Paul writes that the creation itself is waiting, groaning in hope for the revealing of the sons of God, like, a, like the birth of a child. Because on that day, it will mark its own liberation, creation's freedom and redemption from the curse of sin, like a mother eagerly waiting for the birth of her child and has to endure the painful contractions. So the earth is contracting as it eagerly waits for the birth of the sons of God at the return of Christ. This is what Paul is telling us. So the creation groans, not just in pain, but also in hope, in hope of the glory that it too will receive at the final consummation of Jesus' salvation. Salvation, I think as Christians, we often think salvation, it's all about God's people. But salvation is so much bigger than that. Read the book of Revelation. It's so much bigger. It is a cosmic redemption when God will recreate a new heavens and a new earth, and all things, all things will be made new. But until then, the creation groans. But he goes on, because it's not just creation but even the Christians groan. Let's read verse 23 to 26, which is the groaning of the Christian. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, he says, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What Paul says there in verse 23 is essentially this, as creation groans in the same way, in pain, but also in hope, we as Christians do it the same way. We groan inwardly. Now, all Paul, uh, we, I guess we know what Paul means here. We all know that what it's like to be tired of suffering, of hardship. We know it's, we don't know how to put words sometimes to the things that people are going through or that we go through and how oftentimes we don't really know how to describe how we're feeling. I, I know when I, I don't even really ask that question anymore to people. When I know they're going through a hard time, how are you feeling? 
because I know they don't know. They don't know if they're angry. They don't know if they're scared or depressed or mad. They don't know if they're melancholy or frustrated or sad. You just don't know what to say. So inwardly, you just groan, just a groaning. There's an anxiety within and an irritation that aggravates your heart and your soul in light of all these things. But, Paul says, not everybody does it this way, do they? No, Paul says, only those who are Christians, only those who have received the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, what is still to come in the future glory, we have a a first taste of it in that we've received the Spirit and He is with us. Only the Christian groans with such animosity toward the fallenness of this world in the kind of way that Paul is describing. When you turn on the news and you see the things going on around this world, yes, people are upset about it, but the Christian looks at it from a particular angle and perspective, and in their soul they groan for the redemption. Jesus, when are you coming back? When are we going to have redemption over all of this? But just like the creation, we also don't groan in pain alone, but also in hope. But we wait patiently in hope for the redemption of our own bodies, not just the creation. These bodies that are so fearfully and wonderfully made that we read about in the Psalms by God are also yet frightfully and woefully fallen. We long to be delivered, as Paul said at the end of Romans chapter 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian when it comes to suffering is that the Christian has something that they don't have. We have hope, and they do not. And Paul talks briefly about the nature of this hope. He says, like faith, hope is the assurance, the active possession of something that we don't yet have, but are confident one day we will have it. This is not to say, like some often said, I I hope I win the lottery, or I hope I win this game, or my team wins this game. This hope is a confident assurance that what God has promised to me, to you, to all of His children In the future, he will deliver to me at the appointed time. Until then, we groan. We groan. But we groan in pain over the suffering, but we groan in hope and by faith in what we do not yet see by sight. But there's one more who groans in this section. It's not just us and it's not just creation. And to be honest, this just amazes me to consider that as the creation groans, And as the Christian groans, so groans the Holy Spirit. Let's read verse 26 and 27. Likewise, that is to say, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I find this fascinating to know that as the creation is groaning, that's fascinating enough, but the Christian is groaning over the effects of sin and in hope of future redemption, so does the Spirit of God. It's not like God is detached from us as He sees and looks out and sees the suffering and the hardship that we're all going through. It's not like He's aloof from all of that and doesn't experience that. No, he suffers with us. I think it's good to remember that God didn't just suffer for you in the past 
in Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago, though He definitely did that. But through the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit, God still suffers with us and for us in hope of that future redemption. As the Holy Spirit dwells with us, He also identifies with us in our groanings with groanings of His own. You know, if someone's going through a hardship, people often walk up and say, oh, I totally understand what you're going through. No, they don't. (laughs) You don't understand. I don't understand what people are going through. But God knows exactly what they're going through because He is inside of them. He, He says He searches the hearts. He searches the hearts. Paul writes that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit in the last section that we are truly children of God when we both cry out, Abba, Father. And here we see this double witness again, that as we groan inwardly in pain, but also in hope, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit with groans in the same way that are too deep for words. Now, now this is not to say, I think some Christians interpret this way to think that the Spirit has this like hyper-spiritual language or something like that, and only the hyper-spiritual can really tap in and understand that. That's not what he's saying. All he's saying is that sometimes the groaning is there inside every human being, and and we don't know how to put words to it. And after so much hardship and suffering, weakness can start to set in, and we're at a loss for words, right? We don't even know what else to say. We don't even know what to pray. And Paul reassures us that even in those moments when we are at our weakest point and we can't even muster up the energy or the words to pray effectively, the Spirit, Paul says, don't worry, He'll step in. He'll intercede for you with groanings of His own that you don't even understand, you can't comprehend. Isn't that a fascinating thought? Now, Now, why is it, here's a question, why is it that we often get to this point that we don't know what to pray. I know you've been to that point. I know I've been to that point where you're going through a situation and you're like, I don't even know what to pray in this context. Uh, To answer that question, John Stott in his commentary comes to this conclusion. Perhaps we don't know what to say because we're unsure whether to pray for deliverance from our sufferings or whether we should pray for strength to endure them, right? We have this tension. I I don't know. I don't know whether to understand like God wants you to stay in this situation and and learn and lean into His grace like Paul prayed with that thorn in his flesh, or or should I pray for deliverance and that I could be delivered from this job or be delivered from this relationship or whatever it is. But here's the good news that Paul is telling us, is even when we don't know what to pray in our ignorance even when we can't pray due to our weakness, I, just get, I don't even have the energy. Even when we can't put words to our emotions or feelings to describe what's going on and go to God with those things or talk to other people, Paul says, listen, the Holy Spirit will step in even when you're at your weakest moment. And He is able to pray far more effectively than we can in those moments because He is able to, A, search the heart and the intent of the mind of our own spirit. What he's saying is he knows you better than you know you. He knows you. And B, because he also knows the heart and mind of God. And because of that, because he knows us so well, and because he knows God so well, because he is God, he knows our needs, and he knows the power and care of God to meet those needs, and he intercedes for us according to the will of 
of God and answer or fulfills those requests. The encouragement that Paul is giving us is this. As we groan, the Spirit groans as well. And when we groan because we have no idea what else to do as we wait for our redemption, the Spirit knows what to do. He knows what to do on our behalf. Even when you're at your weakest point, you are never alone. You are never without hope. You are never really without words because the Spirit will give you words. He will intercede for you in prayer. So let me ask this question again as we close. Is it worth it? Is choosing to place your faith in Christ as your only hope in life and death, is it worth it? Is giving up your own dreams for your 80 years of life or 90 years of life on this earth and embracing the will of God instead of your will for your own life, is it worth it? Are there any friendships, relationships, possessions, reputations worth pursuing or keeping more than Jesus and more than the future glory of the child of God? Is it worth it? Let's weigh this out. Friends, I can assure you both by faith in the Word of God and by experience, the first fruits of my experience through the Holy Spirit, in walking in step with Him, I think I, many of you will agree with me and say it is worth it. It is so worth it. Why don't we pray and then we'll have a time of communion together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We acknowledge as we were singing earlier that you are king, you are ruler over, <coughs> over all. Your rule ex- extends over all of creation. And the creation itself groans for this future redemption. And, and even the creation groans in, in pain as a result of sin. And, and we identify with that because we see the things in this world and, and how we, to a large degree, are the cause of it, um, and yet we groan over it as your people, and we look forward in expectation to that future salvation. But in the meantime, we're thankful for the ministry and gift of the Holy Spirit inside of all of us, and, and even when we don't know what to do or what to say or what to pray, we're thankful that you have given us the helper to be with us constantly and to intercede for us in our weakness. God, I pray for anyone going through a difficult situation now or looking out onto this world and they're grieved in their hearts. I pray that the ministry of your spirit would give them hope, give them endurance and strength. I pray for anyone here who maybe has asked that question to some degree, is it worth it? Is it worth uh, not being cool at school anymore? Is it worth potentially risking my job? Is, Is it worth... Uh, whatever it is, following Jesus, being known as a Christian, being immersed and telling people about the gospel, is it worth it? I, I pray that in this moment they would recognize it's so worth it. And anything that we give up in this world to follow you, Jesus, is not worth keeping because ultimately we're going to lose it at the end anyway. So what does it matter? And I pray that they would recognize that and turn and trust in you by faith. Now, today, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.